Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's a book out called Lou Reed, A Life by Anthony DeCurtis. DeCurtis. And Anthony is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone, distinguished lecturer, and a creative writing uh, instructor at the University of Pennsylvania. We'll talk about that a little bit. Grammy Award winner. And uh, he did Clive Davis's autobiography and more. We are ver- fortunate to have Anthony with us here tonight. Hi, Anthony. How you doing, man? Great. Uh, it's snowing here. I don't know what it's doing where you are, but you should probably stay in. Yeah, I'm in New York. Yeah, we're expecting the snow. It snowed a little today, and it's uh, been raining on and off. So, yeah, it's not uh, it's not pretty. So you wrote or said, I can't remember which, that you wanted to do uh, the the book that Lou Reed deserved. What did you mean by that? What, what were the problems with any previous? Um, I just felt like Lou, uh, you know, deserved a sort of big, serious book. I mean, there have been some other ones. Uh, I felt that, uh, I don't know, you know, <laughs> in all modesty, I guess, you know, I mean, I knew Lou. I, I felt like I was a better reporter than a lot of the critics who had written about him. And I was, a better critic than a lot of the uh, reporters who had written about him. So there was um, a kind of one-stop shopping aspect that I could bring to it in terms of, um, you know, my sense of who he was, my relationship with him. Uh, I'd written about him and interviewed him many times. And uh, I felt I could put that all together. I felt it was a story I could tell. And I felt that, um, you know, Lou was a pretty literary guy, and I felt like, you know, he would have, you know, he deserved a big book that took his career and his work and his life as seriously as he took the writers that he admired. People would give him a hard time about not uh, for not getting along with critics, but he would say in response, I get along with Anthony DeCurtis. Why did he get along with you? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think, um, you know, there's... Um, you know, the photographer Mick Rock, who you know did a lot of shooting uh, for Lou, he shot the cover of Transformer and uh, The Blue Mask and, you know, many other of Lou's albums. And he did a lot of uh, shooting for David Bowie as well. He was an English guy. And, you know, Bowie introduced Mick Rock to Lou. And um, one of the things that I interviewed uh, Mick for the book, and one of the things that Bowie said about Mick Rock about his photographs he goes Mick sees me the way I see myself and I think uh, you know when Lou read the stuff I had written about him I think he recognized himself there I think it was a way that you know he wanted to be seen and you know I took him seriously I you know had tremendous admiration for his work and um, so there was a portrayal uh, you know, in my writing about him that I think, uh, you know, that's why I think he got along with me. I mean, I think he, I think he appreciated that. I think he was uh, grateful for it. Lou makes people nervous or made people nervous. You had him down to Pennsylvania there for a talk 
And uh, yep. he made people nervous while they were waiting downstairs. You write that they they were nervous. Uh, why? How did Lou Reed make people nervous? Was it kind of like Henry Rollins just kind of cantankerous, or was it something else? Yeah, well, it was that, and it was other things. I mean, for a while, you know, it was a little unclear whether Lou was going to show up. You know, that was, you know, that was one reason they were nervous. Um, you know, I was just happy that he was there, to be honest. Um, but he, you know, Lou had to say, I mean, Lou once said to me, you know, part of this was who he was. I mean, he was, you know, somebody that, you know, didn't hesitate to snap if he uh, had a mind to. And on the other hand, you know, part of it was a strategy. You know, remember he said to me, you know, and I'll eliminate the uh, expletives here, but, you know, one time he just goes, look, Anthony, you know, you're kind of a nice guy. You know, that really doesn't work. Because, you know, you want to, like, you know, if you're a nice guy, they feel like, you know, great, we'll just get this guy to do anything. If you're, he goes, you know, because if you're like me, you know, people bring up like, oh, man, we'll get Lou to do it. Somebody goes, no, 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 no. He'll rip your heart out. Like, he goes, that's what you want. So I think he, you know, he used that as a kind of way to just not do stuff he didn't want to do. You know, he developed this Lou Reed persona and then, you know, kind of lived it. You uh, you wrote Dylan Beatles and James Brown and Lou Reed had the greatest influence on popular music. Can you talk not only about Lou, but I get the Beatles. Can you explain why Dylan and James Brown are included in there and then Lou? Yeah. I mean, Dylan you know, I think established a certain type of, you know, kind of literary seriousness in popular music, you know, and that, you know, pretty much anybody who calls themselves a singer songwriter, which is, you know, a long tradition that followed him, uh, you know, has to look back at Dylan as an influence. Um, James Brown, similarly uh, in the world of funk, uh, you know, anybody working in that mode and, you know, so much of hip hop, you know, can look back to James Brown for Lou, you know, um, it's about what we think of as alternative rock, you know, any rock and roll that was created, you know, without the idea of just having chart hits that goes back to Lou Reed and the velvet underground, you know, and that, you know, that includes David Bowie and, you know, R.E.M. and Nirvana and, you know, any about well, Patti Smith, you know, and, you know, dozens and dozens of other artists. You know, I think that kind of alternative uh, stream and what rock and roll is, you know, all goes back to Lou and the Velvet Underground. I mean, that, that really didn't exist, you know, before Lou and the Velvet Underground put it on the map. Next up, it's 1967, uh, Flower Power, Happy Smiley Faces, but not Lou Reed. <laughs> not Lou Reed. It's, you know, it's, it's dark. Uh, it's the opposite of, of the flower. I, how do you suppose that happened? How much of it was, it's just a depressed guy from New York? How much of it was by design? How much of it was the art student, the literary guy? That's a, this is a key thing. How did, how did the Velvet Underground happen? Well... You know, some of it was conscious and some of it was, you know, 
good luck, you know, just people, you know, Lou meeting John Cale, for example, uh, who was a classical musician and, uh, you know, was interested in popular music. Lou was, you know, uh, a, an English major. He had studied with a famous poet at Syracuse University, a guy named Delmore Schwartz. And Lou had, uh, you know, kind of literary aspirations as well as, you know, wanting to make great rock and roll. So, you know, here are these two characters coming out of these different worlds, one coming out of avant-garde classical music, the other one coming out of a literary world, both meeting in the world of rock and roll. And, you know, Luke was pretty conscious about it. You know, he said over and over again, you know, I really felt that what I wanted to do was kind of, you know, create rock and roll that had some of the themes of, you know, some of the books that I like to read. And, you know, some of those books were pretty far out. You know, people like, you know, William Burroughs, for example, was a, you know, really important for Lou Reed. And so, um, you know, it was, it was pretty intentional, you know. I mean, I don't think he ever could have imagined that it would have the impact that it did. I, I mean, it didn't have that impact initially, but, you know, over the years, I mean, there's a famous remark that Brian Eno once made about the Velvet Underground. He said, you know, the first Velvet Underground record only sold about 30,000 copies, but every one of those 30,000 people formed a band. Oh, right. And yes. That was the kind of, yeah, that was the kind of impact that it had. As an aside, I'm, you, you must have spoken to Brian Eno. What are your you know, thoughts of, about Brian Eno? Well, I think Eno is an interesting guy. I mean, Look, I, I think he's led a kind of really intriguing career, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, beginning in our experience, you know, like with Roxy Music, you know, who were, you know, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year. But he's, you know, he's led a really kind of intriguing life in that, you know, he does things like, you know, he'll produce, you know, David Bowie or, you know, produce Talking Heads and and produce you too, these, you know, big selling artists at the same time as he'll make his own records that are, uh, you know, much kind of more idiosyncratic and strange and experimental. And I think I, I always like people who move in both those worlds, you know, that, you know, can, can reach an audience and understand what that is. I mean, it's supposed to be popular music. On the other hand, they're not afraid to challenge audiences and, you know, they get, I feel, somebody like Eno and, you know, Lou, for that matter. You know, David Bowie's another example. You know, people, they get, I, I feel, like the best of both worlds. Okay. And how much of the Velvet Sound comes from, well, back to, it's by design, and how much is from uh, a lack of, and I don't want to say a lack of ability, but from from restrictions. You know, the, the, there's certain, certain yeah. ways of singing that Lou can't do, and... And Mo Tucker, I don't know, you know, how great a drummer she was. I, I'm just curious as to. Well, she was a great drummer for the Velvet Underground. You know, I mean, she wasn't somebody that, you know, you know, she wasn't Ginger Baker. But I think for what the Velvets were trying to do, there is a kind of tribal quality that she brought to that music that was a kind of corrective to some of the more. Um, you know, some of the more ab abstruse and abstract elements of their sound, you know, she put a kind of very 
you know, solid, you know, kind of thundering, you know, tom tom rhythm in that music. Now, you know, again, it's it's not something that every band needed or every band could use or every band would want, but uh, you know, it worked for them. Um, as for Lou's singing, you know, look, there's <laughs> there's a certain thing that Lou does. You know, I mean, look, if you listen to Johnny Cash or you listen to Bob Dylan, for that matter, you know, these are people who are not, um, you know, by some, uh, I guess, traditional measure, conventional measure, you know, great, quote unquote, singers, but they sing their material extremely well. And they once they sing a song, they make it theirs. And so that element you know, Lou is pretty, um, I mean, I'll tell a story. I mean, I, you know, after my book came out, I performed with bands, you know, we would, to promote the book, uh, we would go out and do sets of Lou Reed songs. And I thought, well, this, yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, this isn't that hard. I'm not having to sing like, uh, I don't know. Freddie Mercury. Even who. Yeah, right. Exactly. Perfect choice. I, yeah, I'm not having to do that. Uh, you know, I could sing a Lou Reed song, but then I started trying to sing some of these songs. They're not that easy. You know, Lou, a lot, a lot of it is about phrasing right. and um, timing. And, you know, that there's an art to that. It, there, it's, not as, it's not as simple as it sounds. By the way, uh, I don't mean to sound negative. I'm I, I was hypercritical. Not at all. Okay, I no, came no. I came to to Lou Reed about Coney Island Baby, Rock and Roll, Hard Time, and my favorite is Temporary Thing of All Time. That big, sort of rather it's a long great song. Yeah, and I only say that just so you know that I'm not a Lou Reed hater. I'm just try, I'm trying to understand what's going no, on. No, you okay. no. Look, Lou is a controversial guy. I mean, I've, I've talked to plenty of people who don't like him. So, you know, any reasonable position. You know, it's, uh, I can deal with it. Okay. Don't hesitate. And uh, how much of a factor do you suppose the depression was in in everything? Uh, I think, uh, I mean, I, I, I look, this is, this is a complicated question. I mean, I don't like to really, uh, and this extends far beyond Lou Reed. This is out into the real world of life and my friends and myself. I mean, I don't like to reduce people to, um, you know, some kind of diagnosis. Uh, I think Lou's emotional life was a, a total factor in terms of the kinds of things he thought about and uh, wrote about, you know, uh, how different is that from anyone else who, you know, goes about their work. You know, everybody sees the world through the filter that um, I guess is partly theirs through their DNA and partly theirs through their experience. And I think that was true of him. Um, you know, Lou, I mean, I was struck. One of the things, you know, that repeatedly came up was, uh, you know, people talked about Lou not being, quote unquote, a happy guy. And, um, you know, look, I was with Lou a number of times. You know, he would laugh his head off at certain things that he enjoyed, and he had a, a great capacity for pleasure. But, you know, there was a dark side to him, and he turned that's what he turned into his art. 
you know? And so um, the answer to your question, I suppose, is that a lot of it, although I, you know, I'm just a little hesitant to just slap the term depression Yes, on I, I, I understand. I'm very interested in the relationship with the Velvet Underground and the factory and Andy Warhol, and it helps me understand yeah. Warhol a little bit. Uh, yep. Before the break, I have a relatively easy question. How fully formed was Lou when he got to Andy Warhol? How, you know, how much was he able to resist Warhol? How, or how much was he formed by Warhol? Well, I think there was a dynamic there. You know, I think, you know, Lou... He, Lou was pretty fully formed. I mean, you know, a lot of the songs that we know, certainly from the first Velvet Underground uh, album, had been written by the time Lou got to Andy. But, you know, through working with Andy, Lou studied him. Yeah, you know, that's what he did with people. He observed him. And so he learned a lot from Warhol. And so he was formed, but he also continued to form. You know, he was somebody who evolved as, you know, as, uh, as time went on. And, and certainly uh, Warhol was a primary influence on, on Lou, even though, um, you know, Lou had already written a lot of those songs. I think he, Warhol taught him a set of possibilities that he then tried to enact in the world. And a couple of minutes on Nico, uh, didn't seem like Lou was all thrilled about Nico. I remember you wrote that in one session. You know, she she wanted to sing all the songs. Lou didn't want her to sing any song. Who was was she foisted upon them, or was she? She was foisted upon them. Yeah, um, Warhol and um, you know, sort of Warhol's kind of right hand guy named Paul Morrissey, who was a film director also, and kind of a uh, you know just a. You know, it was almost like Warhol's lieutenant around the studio or the uh, factory, you know, where they all hung out. They thought the Velvet Underground were a little boring. You know, they just like, well, there are these four guys. You know, none of them is really like, um, you know, a kind of matinee idol. So we need somebody to look at. And so here comes Nico, who's 5'10". She's German. She's gorgeous. Um, you know, she's been around the music scene a bit. Uh, and by virtue of um, various lovers, including Bob Dylan. And also, you know, there was a lot of interest in her. The Rolling Stones manager at the time, Andrew Oldham, was interested in working with Nico. And so they said, well, why don't we just make her the singer? You know, this is a very Warhol decision. You know, Lou did not like that. But Lou felt, Lou put up with it for a while because, you know, I, I think, well, because I think he felt he needed Warhol and, uh, you know, and that there were ways he could use Nico to advance what the Velvet Underground were. But as soon as he felt uh, he didn't need to do that anymore, that was the end of that. First right. Nico was gone, Let's then take, Warhol was gone. We're going to get a little news and hopefully we can continue. I, I'm loving this. I have some more questions. We're with Anthony DeCurtis. Great. Lou Reed is the book. Lou Reed, A Life. And um, I want to find out more about the, the Warhol. Maybe you can think about this over the break. Uh, so, How close is the ratio of 
Warhol to Lou Reed, kind of like Malcolm McLaren to the Pistols or to Bow Wow Wow. Or maybe maybe there's no analogy there, or maybe it's similar. I'm trying to understand the relationship. It's WBZ. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. All right. Get back to Anthony DeCurtis, our guest talking about his book, Lou Reed, A Life. And now we're at the point where Lou's dealing with Andy Warhol, which can't be easy. I read a couple of things that were disturbing. One was at some point, Andy Warhol wanted Lou to sign a contract, which all the proceeds of whatever they were doing would go through Andy Warhol and Paul Morrissey. That seems like a red flag, and that made me, for some reason, think of Malcolm McLaren. Is there uh, a... A similar relationship between Lou and Andy and Malcolm and his artists? Well, you know, there was a, you know, there was a, certainly a tendency on Warhol's part to see um, the Velvet Underground as, you know, part of the factory, you know, in the same way that he was, would anoint these various women primarily as superstars and, you know, they were movie actresses and, yeah, but there was a kind of sense that he was the the center of it all. And Lou wanted a real rock manager that was, you know, after the first, certainly after the first two Velvet Underground records, um, you know, Lou felt that, you know, he wanted, you know, to be a successful band, you know, not just a kind of... Um, you know, element in, you know, Warhol's coterie. And so uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, I think Warhol and the Velvet Underground were playing on a bigger stage than than Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols, even as important as they were. You know, Warhol is hugely significant. The Velvet Underground are massively significant. You know, I think that, you know, they were, I think, both, kind of, uh, you know, more significant figures, I suppose, than, uh, than McLaren and, uh, and the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. So some of the same things are going on, but I think that uh, certainly Lou, you know, had a vision that extended out beyond what Warhol wanted for him. Do you, was a Warhol justified in feeling like he owned them, sort of, uh, like maybe almost that they would be nothing without him? Um, I don't think he was justified. Uh, I mean, certainly there was a sense in which their involvement with Warhol got them a tremendous amount of attention, but not all of that attention was good. I mean, you know, there certainly was a tendency on the part of people in the rock world, which tended certainly back then to be pretty earnest you know, to see Warhol as a kind of put on and any band that he would be associated with as, um, you know, just kind of ironic and, you know, not a real rock band. Right. Whereas for whatever else they were, I think, you know, Lou wanted the Velvet Underground to be a real rock band. Okay. So, you know, Warhol got them attention. There's no doubt about that. Um, right. And 
I think in his mind, <laughs> that might have justified it. So Warhol had his own personal studied, and this is your phrase, studied superficiality. And a lot of the, like, the superstar, you know, the superstars that he put together was kind of, you know, a put on. And Lou didn't want to be part of that superficiality. He wanted, he wanted to be more real, so that was a problem. But, of course, the trade-off was Warhol was famous and could, could right. move them forward. How much of a staple? Yep. How much of a staple were they at the factory? Were they always there, doing all the shenanigans? They were there people? all the time. Yep. For about how long? All of it. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, for a couple of years, certainly. You know, I think by you know after the, uh, uh, you know after their 1968 album White Light White Heat, you know they were not around there much and. You know, that was the year, I think, also that Warhol was shot. And that was a that turned out to be a major um, kind of breaking point with him and Lou, because Lou didn't get in touch with with Warhol for weeks, really, after he had been shot. And I think Warhol was really hurt by that. Um, And they had a very um, kind of wary relationship for the rest of their lives, really. I mean, Warhol died in, I think, 1987. Uh, obviously, Lou lived, you know, up until, you know, 2013. But, you know, they 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 kind of circled around each other. And, you know, I think part of Lou realized how important Warhol was to him, and part of him resented it. I mean, I think he felt that Warhol, you know, if you look at that first, you know, a uh, Velvet Underground album. I mean, Warhol's name is kind of as big as the band. And I think, you know, that bothered Lou. Speaking of wary relationships, there's the relationship with Bowie, ups and downs. I was always a, a giant Bowie person. And I remember sure. I remember that that uh like brawl they had. It was I it was I think it was the day that Lodger came out and I was I was picking up the it was right around that time and I heard that yeah. Lou, Lou Reed had popped David Bowie in the face at some sort of event. And I thought, oh, my God, he hit my guy. And that must have been a sign oh, of kind of yeah. a rocky relationship. Well, for sure. Yeah. Um, and that resulted from, uh, evidently, they were talking about maybe Bowie producing Lou. And this is kind of uh, pretty interesting. Uh, you know, maybe at that point, Bowie was beginning to get out of his own drug phase, which was pretty significant. Uh, but he told Lou that unless Lou got clean, he wasn't going to work with him. And that's when, you know, that kind of brawl, I mean, uh, a Lou Reed, David Bowie brawl is, you know, <laughs> isn't exactly, uh, you know, Ali and Frazier, but <laughs> nonetheless, nonetheless, no, no. You know, their punches were thrown and, uh, and uh, they, you know, they needed to be pulled apart. Yeah, I, you know, even though it wasn't the thriller in Manila, it still would be something to see. Yeah, yeah no, for sure, for sure. And what was and, you know? Look, there's ahead. another, there's another example. I think, you know, look, Bowie really helped establish Lou's solo career. I mean, look, Lou was a huge influence on Bowie, and you know, in Bowie's way, he was paying paying a debt. And, you know, he produced, uh, he and Mick Ronson, Bowie's guitar player, you know, produced uh, Transformer. And Lou would speak about, you know, what incredible work they did on that record. 
you know, would walk on the wild side. It was, you know, uh, you know, it may still be Lou's most popular solo record. But I think, you know, after a while, I think Lou began to feel like Bowie got too much credit and this kind of thing. You know, Lou was the kind of artist uh, who, you know, was, you know, when he would work with somebody, he would get what he needed. And then once he got it, well, then he didn't need it or he didn't need you anymore. You know, there was that element to him. He was um, selfish in that kind of way that many artists are. So Bowie, you know, nobody can be complete. And Bowie would befriend and utilize folks that kind of had something that he lacked, like Iggy Pop. You know, Bowie did not have physical, totally. physical scary power, and so he gravitated toward Iggy for a while. And, and I'm sure the same was the case with Lou Reed. What is it that yep. Lou had that Bowie needed? Well, at very early on, you know, when when Lou, when Bowie heard the first um, Velvet Underground record, which he heard before it came out, he heard what was then called an acetate. Yeah, you know, he just, you know, I mean, I think he felt that Lou had just opened the door for a certain type of, um, a certain way of being in rock and roll, you know, that hadn't been apparent before, you know, just kind of smashing, uh, you know, certainly subject matter, but, you know, opening up, all kinds of gender issues and things like that, that, you know, Bowie would, I think, I think Bowie's quote about it was something like, you know, like Lou created the landscape that we all then inhabited. And I think, you know, that was true. You know, I think Lou Bowie understood very quickly um, the possibilities of what the Velvet Underground were doing. And, you know, in his way, uh, you know, use them to, you know, create who David Bowie was. We're at the point now where we're talking about Lou, a Lou Reed partner, Laurie Anderson. When I sure. was, when I was doing college radio in 1981, Laurie Anderson was, you know, she was huge. It, oh, Superman yeah. was something that got played all the time. And it seems absolutely natural and almost unavoidable to me that they would meet and and become a, become partners. He must have brought a lot of joy to his life. She must have brought well, a lot of joy. Yes, I think you know that was a it was a very deep and powerful connection that they had. You know, and I think, um, you know, they were kind of you know, in a kind of New York underground way. You know, something of a power couple. You know, they were seen around town all the time. I mean, I ran into them constantly and. You know, I think anybody who was going to shows or going to gallery openings or going, you know, to films, you know, was likely to see them. They were they were very deeply woven into the uh, cultural life of, uh, you know, downtown New York City. And it was um, a relationship that was very good for him. You know, it, it uh, you know, it lasted a, a long time and they... Uh, you know, it kind of stabilized him some. You know, Lou was somebody who, uh, uh, you know, had had a pretty rocky life, and that relationship was something that was uh, was profound, really. 
Can you talk, tell people a little bit about Lori Anderson, just so she knows, because it's it's pretty relevant. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, Lori. Um, I mean, one of the things that you know that she said is that you know she describes herself as a performance artist because you could more or less do anything under that heading, and that's you know she's a wonderful um, uh, musician. She's just a terrific writer. She's a very accomplished filmmaker, uh, someone who really, wherever she kind of um, sets her sights, uh, manages to do something interesting. And she's someone who, like Lou, this is something they shared in common, she was very interested in technology and always has been. And both as a subject and in terms of its impact on um, culture, but also ways to use technology, to ways to disguise your voice and treat your voice uh, in spoken word and in, in singing and, uh, you know, kind of create sounds using your own body. You know, it was, you know, she's just a fascinating person. You know, Lou, in many ways, was, uh, I mean, as as adventurous as Lou could be, Lou, in many ways, was a much more conventional uh, figure than she was, but they, uh, you know, they kind of nicely complemented each other in that regard. Let's move over to Vaclav Havel, former Czech president. Told Lou, yes. told Lou at one point, he said, did you know I am president because of you? That's probably a good way to get into it. You can tell this whole story uh, yeah, from scratch. Well, you know, the they called it the Velvet Revolution, you know, when uh, Vaclav Havel and uh the the various uh, activists in the former Czechoslovakia, you know, it, uh, attempted to and successfully, you know, overthrew the communist regime there. And the Velvet Underground, you know, when when Václav Havel came to the United States in the late '60s, you know, he bought the Velvet Underground records, and those became very, um, you know, very treasured objects in Czechoslovakia. You couldn't find them there. I mean, you could barely find them here for a long time, but, uh, you know, they would be circulated and they had a very powerful impact. Again, it was a, a kind of vision, the sense of freedom and possibility that uh, that those records represented was something that inspired, uh, you know, those activists. And it was when Lou was able to go there, uh, you know, later on after Havel had become the president of the Czech Republic, you know, that was just an extraordinary uh, situation. I mean, it's hard to imagine, you know, another musician ever being in a situation exactly like that. I mean, plenty of, you know, plenty of politicians have liked plenty of artists, but, you know, to be credited as, uh, you know, one of the sources for a revolution that was so significant, I mean, that was... Um, uh, you know, that was powerful and, and, and highly important. What kind of life did Lou, I guess, Lou and Laurie lead for the last, few, I don't know, five, ten years of their lives? You know, after being famous, they're just kind of living in New York. What did they do? Where did they hang out? What neighborhoods? Uh, well, they lived down in Tribeca, you know, uh, and actually they had separate places, uh, although... You know, there was an apartment they had on West 11th Street right by the Hudson River, which would be, I guess, um, you know, the sort of far west uh, end of Greenwich Village. 
And then Lori had a studio, you know, further downtown in uh, Tribeca. And, you know, their apartment was a place, you know, they liked to socialize. Um, although one of the interesting things, I mean, I think one of the reasons that relationship lasted was, you know, Lori you know, was a fully established person in her own right. And, you know, Lou could be pretty clingy, but Lori, you know, just kind of went about her business. And I think, you know, that kept Lou interested. And they had many interests in common. As I said, you know, they love to go to, uh, you know, to see shows, to see bands, to see, um, you know, exhibitions, to see gallery openings, to, uh, you know, to see movies. It was uh, to see theater. You know, they were real culture vultures, uh, as you would expect them to be. And they, uh, you know, so they lived a very public life uh, here. And, you know, a, a Lou and Lori sighting was, uh, you know, was, was part of what living in New York was like. I really appreciate your time. Very, very generous. You spent a long time with us. Great book. Oh, no, man. It was totally a pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Lou Reed, a life. Anthony DeCurtis, uh, making us feel like we're right down in New York. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bradley. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.